So this is me, the obviously. But when? You don't know. I'm about to tell you. The final, don't give it away. The final morning of the final day on my outward bound excursion of October 2011. And I am smiling from a sense of accomplishment and relief. And I'm smiling because I'm going to be home, going home soon. And I am smiling because I just showered for the first time in eight days. <laughs> Living outside in the woods, in the rain, with the sweat, hiking up and down thousands and thousands of feet of elevation, the grime you can only imagine. And then the final morning of that final day, about an hour and a half before this, they took us out for our final test, a 5K race through the woods, just to get us good and finally grimy. So uh, between my early 30s and my early 40s, about a decade or so, I, I ran a whole bunch of races, 5Ks, 10Ks, several half marathons. And I have to tell you that this 5K was my favorite race of them all. I ended it hand in hand, like we were finishing some kind of stage of the Tour de France, except not on bikes, on feet, with um, my best friend that I made on course, as we call it, and that we're bound. Now, this guy, I didn't know at all before we got to the Outward Bound excursion. He was a Midwestern stockbroker, very different, much more conservative than I am. And there is something magical, I must tell you, about taking people out of our normal, everyday routines, putting us in an uncertain circumstance where we have to learn to negotiate and navigate all kinds of things that prior we did not know about. And getting outside of our established identities, he and I found that, in fact, we had so much in common. We found out, for example, that both of us had been in our first marriages really, really lousy husbands. And that in our current marriages, we were trying and succeeding, doing a lot of things better. During that time in my life, when I was going through mindfulness teacher training and happened to mention that during our first check-in, he brought up that this guy named Thich Nhat Hanh was someone who had just started to read. And so every night when it wasn't pouring down rain and sometimes pouring rain sideways, we would sit outside before bed of our tent and do 20 minutes of mindfulness meditation together. And so he, much more a kind of traditional and well-conditioned athlete than me during this 5K, he slowed down. And I sped up to my absolute maximum most quick so we could end the race together as an expression of our bond. I look back on that with great fondness. And yes, it was after that the best shower I ever took in my life. Side note here, uh, North Carolina Outward Bound, which ran the program that I went on, they used to send you back home without the opportunity to shower beforehand until, 
until all the airlines registered so many complaints about the stink of the students that were on their course. It said, unless you start allowing them to take a shower before they leave, you cannot fly home on our airlines. And so it wasn't like a gift that Outward Bound gave me. It just allowed them to stay in business. And I got to tell you, that night when I got home and I opened up my bag of all the things I had worn for those eight days, I smelled the smell of ripeness and rankness and pride of effort. And then I sealed that crap up and I washed it immediately. So... um Two hours later, after that, that picture, after that photo, my smile had dimmed quite a bit. We were still there. It was still a few hours before we would leave for the airport. See, one of our fellow participants in the Outward Bound excursion, after a half hour and another half hour and another half hour and another half hour had passed, she didn't come back. It appeared she was lost in the woods. We thought and we started to tell some of these stories, you know, maybe one of these terrible, not quite mythological, very real copperhead snakes that live in the mountains of western North Carolina had gotten her. Maybe she ran into a bear. Maybe, and this has to do with what I was just mentioning you about taking people out of their normal everyday circumstances and putting them into somewhat extreme circumstances and encouraging them deeply to trust themselves and each other and rely on themselves and each other in perhaps ways we don't in our normal everyday lives, how that brings about some changes. Well, this friend of ours on course, she experienced of the nine of us the greatest breakdown Slash breakthrough. And so maybe we wondered. We wondered. That as she was headed back to a life that all of us knew in detail was not easy, a life in which she did not have support, that maybe at the end of this incredibly high point of this week in the woods together, that maybe she just chose to wander off. Maybe even engage in some self-harm. You know, we knew we were telling stories. We knew we were filling that gap of uncertainty with maybe some ways of making the inexplicable at that point explicable. And we restrained ourselves. But still, that's a temptation, isn't it? A huge temptation when we don't know what's going on to fill in the blanks with stories about who we are, who someone else is, especially when we're afraid. Now, blessedly, thankfully, just before, like five minutes before I got on my plane at the Asheville airport, we all got texts. She was found. She was okay. She was no longer lost in the woods. It is very tough not letting our imaginations run away with our lives when we are uncertain and when we are afraid. This is what today's Spirit Flicks movie is all about. The Witch, a New England folktale, as the full title goes. A horror story, and here's the weird thing, it was marketed as a horror story. Maybe teenagers would show up, maybe young adults would show up. They'd be like, you know, they'd, they'd put that green light camera on and they'd show the people having like, oh my God, I can't believe that's about to happen kind of stuff in the dark. That's not this kind of horror movie. And so actually a lot of folks were disappointed. I 
loved it. It is about an exiled family from 1600s Puritan America, probably Massachusetts, we might imagine. The movie opens with a religious disagreement between the elders of those community, of that community, and the father of this particular family that the story focuses on. And so the first thing we see about them is their isolation. They're leaving. They're heading off into the woods. They're heading off to the place on the edge of what is known to civilization as them. By themselves, isolated, and as we see, increasingly isolated from each other. Because things, things start to go wrong out there in the woods, on the edge of the world. The world as they know it. The first summer, the crops do not come in. The harvest has disease within it. Pestilences, perhaps they would have called it back then. And, to borrow a phrase that many of us know from another venue, winter is coming. And they wonder, will they be able to make it through alive? And then things get even worse. A baby, one of five children in the family, the baby, disappears under mysterious and awful circumstances. So, you know, most horror movies, it's kind of posed like this. The question is, especially monster movies, and there's a monster in this movie. We have to find out as the audience and the participants in the movie have to find out, is it out there, the witch, the monster, the murderer, is it out there real or is the monster all in our heads, a figment of our imagination? The genius of this movie is that the answer is both. There is something wicked that lives in the woods, and there is also the ghosts, the stories that we tell ourselves that live between our ears when we are stressed. A lot of traditional folk tales, like think like, you know, Hansel and Gretel. It's all about watch what happens when you get out into the wild. Watch what happens out there in the wilderness. The things that might eat you, consume you, harm you. But this folktale, it's about the perils even more of the ghosts between our ears. The stories that we get lost in when we're scared. Fearful figments of our imaginations that make our pain, our dis-ease, our uncertainty, A hell of a lot worse. Because the truth is, although this is a horror movie about something wicked that lives in the woods, the deepest horror of this movie is that it's the horror of a dysfunctional family. When they need each other the most, they turn on each other the fiercest. And decades ago, and I hadn't thought about this family in like literally decades, but they were kind of the size and the shape of the family in the movie. I remember a family like this. It was kind of like, you know, three steps away removed from them. I knew one of the kids in the family. And it was a family in which one of the parents lost a job. One of the kids had a problem, as now I would notice it, as addiction. And I went over to that family's house just a few times to play with their youngest son. And what I recall is that with the slightest provocation, spilled milk, Someone forgot to get a permission form signed from school. They were at each other's throats immediately, looking for someone to blame, using words like always and never 
You always do such and such. You never do this or that. The opposite of granting each other trust and support, the opposite of granting each other grace, what they were doing was looking for a scapegoat. There was difficult things happening in their lives. But as I remember it now, the most difficult thing happening was the stories they were telling about each other. And, of course, you know, we know this isn't just about families, right? This happens in societies as well, too. Societies that are scared or frightened are going through economic change, kind of like ours. Stories in which power is shifting, kind of like ours. And cultures and societies like that can look for scapegoats. If only we could get some others to blame, then we can take away our own fear, our own fright, our own uncertainty. But of course, you know, that is a temptation that never pans out and it just creates more horror and more hardship. Of course, our world and the tragedy of this movie, that doesn't have to be this way. There is one moment in this movie of the path not taken. About this character. Thomason, the eldest daughter, the teenager, and she's caught in a tug of war between her parents, wanting them to blame maybe their younger kids for being witched, for being overcome by the devil. And Thomason, under pressure, interrogation from her father, says these words, I cannot know for certain. I cannot know for certain. As in, I cannot know for certain exactly what happened. I cannot know for certain the state of their souls. Except her family, her mom and her dad, they keep pushing at her. Until finally she condemns her younger siblings. And her younger siblings condemn her. And fear fills in the blanks with accusations. And they turn on each other. The thing is, in this movie, the threat is real. It is out there. But from the place of dealing with what is inexplicable, they search for something that feels explicable. And they take one another down. This movie is just an extended metaphor about the witches of our lives. The monsters that live out there. The stuff that happens all the time in the wider society. The job lofts, that is absolutely catastrophic. The health news that makes you wonder if you or someone else in your family is going to see another day. The addiction, the disease, the act of violence. All that stuff happens in our lives. And that stuff comes home. But here's the thing. In that moment of the stress, of the pain, of the uncertainty, do we start telling stories about each other? Do we look for someone to blame? Do we look for scapegoats? Do we start believing the ghost between our ears in that scared place so we can think we can take the pressure down? We just end up making a painful situation worse. Now, maybe this isn't as extreme in your life as it is in the movie. 
or some of the scenarios I just mentioned. But you know what? Maybe it is exactly like this in your life. It is a universal temptation in situations in which we are stressed to try to put some floor underneath our feet, even if it's a false floor. So we don't have to feel our fear filling in the blanks when we're afraid. At that moment, at those moments, it is so powerful and so hard. I know it from my own life. To hold our tongues. But not hold our breath. (laughs) To not say the thing about the someone else who's causing all of it. To search for scapegoats. To hold our tongues, but to not hold our breath means that in time we may find a truer, deeper, calmer voice that is able to help in healing rather than harming. It means seeing the stories that we're telling, the ghosts between our ears that we're believing. Uh, There's a form of this. I referred to this a number of months ago. Reverend Lee used it in her uh, uh, small group she's doing right now on fighting fairly, on working with uh, conflict creatively. It goes like this. Some of you have repeated this back to me over the last few months. The story I'm telling myself is. You know that. Some of you know that. The story I'm telling myself is when you and I have an argument, when I'm not getting along with a family member, when we have a misunderstanding, a disagreement, when I'm starting to feel that quaking, shaking uncertainty, I'm starting to feel that anxiety. And I start to think in terms of always or never, you always say the worst thing possible to me at the exact worst moment. And I can't believe you're doing this to me. You never say the kind thing. I mean, fill in the blanks, right? You got your stories. We all do this to a certain extent. If if you've never done this, please let me know. Tell me your secret. See, what we're doing there is we are believing the ghost between our ears because we're afraid. It's understandable. And so when we can verbalize rather than believe, this is the story I'm telling. And we can actually speak it aloud and maybe that helps it evaporate. (laughs) Maybe we can laugh at it a little bit. Or you know what? Maybe it's true, but at least we can verify that it's true rather than believing it without proof. Seeing the story for what it is that we're telling. Holding the tongue for a moment while still remembering the breath. Through this, we can touch a really powerful, vulnerable goodness that is basic to all of us. That is also so much more resilient than believing the stories we make up. Two weeks ago, I I saw a really powerful witness, a really powerful experience of this. And it was at this event was it facing addiction. Uh, They had an event at the DNC and they had an event the week before that at the RNC at both conventions. See, as a recovering person, I know. Addicted people and people in recovery. People tell stories about us all the time. In fact, the larger narrative around addiction is one that has wound us up in a place in which our approach on society level is largely punitive, largely moralistic. And it leads to really awful outcomes for people who are in pain, who want help. And so facing addiction, this awesome group encourages us 
to recover, especially those of us with long term recovery, recover out loud. Tell your story so someone else doesn't tell it for you. And in this way, destigmatize, move beyond the shame, the silence, the secrecy. So that we can point the way and help point the way towards more compassionate approaches to this harm that is affecting so many levels and families of our society. Instead of being othered and isolated, we connect with compassion. So at this event, a guy that some of you might know, he actually might be your governor if you live in Delaware, a guy named Governor Jack Markell, told a story. Not about making up stories about other people, but about what it's like to vulnerably share your story authentically. It was just after he had announced his run for governor. And they invited an interviewer over, a journalist over, to kind of give those first like, uh, profile of the family, political family profile. You know, normally these kinds of things, you know, they're kind of fairly standardly packaged, make the family look good. Well, in this story, in this interview... Jack Markell's wife, Carla, told a story of growing up in a chaotic, painful, alcoholic household. That just to give you an example of the chaos she grew up in, she moved 17 times in the first 16 years of her life. No stability, a lot of fear, shame, blame, anger, until... Someone offered her the grace and the invitation to recover herself as a teenager. She found support. She found that she did not have to perpetuate all the things that she was handed as an inheritance. That she didn't have to keep on keeping on with replicating the behaviors that were her family. Now, this was not the story people expected about the Markells. And the governor went on to share that sometime after this, he was at a school, a middle school, and an eighth grade girl came up to him almost timidly, quietly, and said to him, because I read that interview with you and your wife, I know That there's hope for me. This is what can happen. When instead of making up stories that take away the pain, the uncertainty, the fear, the harm. We share our stories. Of our vulnerable places. Nothing can take away all of the uncertainty of what it is to be alive. Anyone that promises you that is promising you a temptation that will end in harm for you or another person. Things will always go bump in the night. Bottoms will drop out. Devastating news at one point or another, if we're paying attention and if we have opened our hearts, devastating news will find us. And chances are some of us will lose our way. These are the moments that count. These are the moments when we can choose not to rip ourselves apart at the seams in fevered fantasy, in making up stories, believing the ghosts between our ears. 
those are the moments when we can metabolize our fear into courage. Those are the moments when we can seek solidarity, when we can engage our moral, ethical, spiritual imagination. Those are the moments that count because those are the moments that heal. Today, may you share your stories, not by making any up, not by looking for scapegoats, but from the vulnerable, tender places within you, trusting how holy and how sacred they are and how sacred you are. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. In this moment, in this holy now, this moment as pregnant, as full, and as open with the divine as any other moment that has ever been, Perhaps we're noticing some of those vulnerable, tender places. Perhaps we're noticing the resistance to feeling vulnerable. Just feel it if it's arising. Right now, we are safe. Right now and here, there is love. Right now, at least for a moment, we can sit with it. This path can be trusted. That inside of all of us, there is a heart that beats and a heart that manages to beat even when it is broken. As the great singer said, there is a crack in everything. This is how the light gets in. It is also how the light is released, how the light is shared, and how in the light of that light, all our lives belong All our lives are beloved. Amen.